Well, first of all, we're recording at the Dalton McGinty Studios today, uh, also known as my apartment. Luke knows this. We've been with the wait, last... I, I, wait. Do I know this? Is is this is this where you live? I thought this was the Dalton McGinty <laughs> Studios. You're not going to report me to the authorities for living at the workplace, are you? <laughs> I always knew you were doing sketchy stuff with your taxes. We've been without heat here for much of the last week. It has been restored. It was restored yesterday. We're still without electricity in much of the apartment. This is <laughs> this is kind of a funny story that I want to share with the listeners. You see, the furnace system has been a problem on this property for at least the last. 14 months. And the on-off solution has been go down, turn it off, turn it on. And that for a while would last a while. And then <laughs> armies of electricians have come in. It's like, the, it's like the home heating equivalent of like when your N64 game wouldn't work and you'd blow on the cartridge. And then after a while, the blowing just stops doing anything, if indeed it did anything at all in the first place. And the landlord in his infinite <laughs> wisdom thought, oh, well, we've got the problem solved. And it's like, again, as the problem has gotten worse and worse, as the on-off solution has been off more and more. And like, this was fine during the summer, of course because you don't need heating don't need heat but in late november it starts to be a bit of a problem and then and then the on off solution just stopped working and it, and i should say just as a point of information in the last kind of week it has really started to feel like late fall to early winter in toronto temperatures have gone down quite a lot so the heat just stopped working altogether and negotiating with the landlord during this has been a little bit like the dead parrot sketch <laughs> Eventually, you know, it required a call to the city, let's put it that way. And the short term solution before they could replace the entire furnace was they were going to get us all space heaters. So they did that. We all got space heaters. And then this is a property that's like four floors. There's a unit on every floor. So everyone got a space heater and everyone had the space heater on and that blew out the electricity. And then we said this to the landlord. It's like, OK, now we have no heat and no electricity. And, and, they, and, and the la- I love, by the way, that their their proposed solution not only did not solve the problem but it actually made it worse because i mean space heaters suck right and it's like oh, they don't, yeah they don't really well, heat if you're it. within two feet of it it's great it's, yeah. yeah well okay but that's the problem i mean if you're within two feet of them often it's too hot you yes, know? yes so so it doesn't really work in either direction but in this case not only does space heaters not work uh yeah they shorted out your electricity and now no one in your building has it so then we said okay we're having problems with the electricity and the landlord and in their infinite wisdom said well, during this time, the tenants need to be in constant communication with each other. You guys should have one space heater on at a time. They're proposing that there be one space heater on for all four you, units. You guys, uh, you guys have like a cup on a string that runs between the different units, and you know, you, yeah, you, exactly. you stay in constant uh, contact. So to we're gonna coordinate the space heater situation. So what remaining electricity <laughs> there is? What sockets haven't been blown out? <laughs> we are supposed to be rationing the space heater. <laughs> We're supposed to be supposed to be in constant communication with these the neighbors who during this union drive. Do, do, do you live in London during the Blitz? Like, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, it's like what? What? It's not practical for me to be like, okay, from two a.m. to four a.m. I get the space heater on, and then and then you on the fourth floor get it from six a.m. to seven thirty, and then ridiculous. So we do we do have the heat back. I hope it costs them a lot of money. Okay, so you have the heat back, but what's going on with the electricity? Did the same happen? Did they give you the heat back? 
and then somehow that messed up the electricity again. Originally, the owner was going to do it himself, but it seems the landlord can't do it himself. So now I've submitted a second ticket and we're going to get an electrician in to figure out the electricity. God, you know, landlords really are scum. Uh, it's yes. It's got to be. I mean, it's just like, the, you know, the landlord lobby whose new thing is they don't want to be called landlords. That's pejorative. Um, and, you know, yeah, they're right about that. It is pejorative, but for good reason. Yeah. Their new thing is that they want to be called housing providers. Oh, And yeah. so much of the shit they do, like, it, there's so much bullshit, right? They always try to represent, and I'm sure this is true everywhere I'm talking, you know, I know most of what I know is about the Ontario Landlords Association or whatever it's called, the Housing Providers Union or whatever C- they're calling it. Can they maybe provide me with a month's free rent because I haven't had heat? <laughs> yeah, right. But like so much of their agitprop is about how, uh, you know, uh, oh, people think landlords are these big companies, but it's actually just, they're just small businesses and they care for their tenants like like they're their own children. And it's like, first of all, it's like most landlords are, it's like just big companies, right? Well, I mean- But what, secondly, what, there's no inherent virtue in being a small business, right? No, no. well, <laughs> like, the, the way that they're able to create that image is the fact that if you know anything about housing in this city or any city like it, you know that the price of houses are built for landlords. If you look at houses that are on sale, all three floors have kitchens in them, okay? That's <laughs> yeah. what we're dealing with in this city. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then even if you can afford the down payment, you're basically expected because of the mortgages to rent the basement because mm-hmm. uh, that's the only way a lot of people can pay for that mortgage. Mm-hmm. And so then they, you know, because of this, you know, horrific system that we've built, there are now a lot of people who I guess are technically landlords because they have to rent out their basement to frickin' survive. <laughs> and they use them as the human shields. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, folks, welcome back to Michael and Us. Uh, I'm Luke Savage. Is always with me is my good friend. Will Sloan. <laughs> Before we get off the ground today, I want to say a few belated thank yous to everyone I saw in Windsor uh, last week at the Biblioasis bookstore and afterwards. Thanks so much for the kind welcome. Thanks to Noelle and her partner uh, who came over from Detroit. Uh, thanks to uh, Eric, Nick, and Zach who joined me at the bar after. It was a really, really good time. And uh, yeah, very, very flattered that uh, people crossed an international border. I mean, you know, Windsor and Detroit are just a few hundred meters away from each other across the water, but I was uh, very, very flattered flattered nonetheless. The line can be pretty long sometimes. You're waiting in your car for like as long as an hour sometimes, so it's not nothing. Now, I also want to thank Dan and Scarlett and everyone else at the wonderful Biblioasis bookstore who were very warm hosts. It is unfortunate the event was on the same day as the Grey Cup, uh, and because uh, a bunch of Americans came over, I got to explain what the Grey Cup was, <laughs> which they, you know, hadn't heard about. And when we were going to the bar, I was, you know, I was sort of like suggesting, I think, on the way over that, oh yeah, the bar is going to be filled with people watching the Grey Cup. And sure enough, we go in, right, and there's like visibly people watching football. And I sort of gesture at the big screen, and I'm like, aha, the Grey Cup. And then, uh, yeah, one of them pointed out, I, th- I think this is just the NFL, and I look over, and it's like, so yeah, on the night of the Grey Cup, at a bar in a blue-collar town like Windsor, people were watching the fucking NFL. Uh, kind of like our Canadian politics podcast that is always about Joe Biden, you know? <laughs> anyway, thanks again to uh, the beautiful city of Windsor, and to folks who came out uh, from Windsor, and also from uh, Michigan as well. For my event, it was really, really nice to meet you, and same goes for uh, everyone who came out to uh, the events in Toronto, Vancouver, etc. It's been a real treat, and kind of an unexpected one as part of the uh, the book tour for Seeking Social Democracy to meet so many people who are who are fans of the show and and you know fans of my work more broadly. So I really, really, uh, really appreciate it, folks. 
Now, one other thing I want to say about this trip is that I took the train uh, from Toronto to Windsor, which I've taken the train east a lot, like I've taken the Via train to Ottawa quite a bit. And uh, I don't know how else to say it, but the trip was kind of emotional because of the route the train took. Uh, the train just just so happened to go through a number of very formative places for me that I have not visited in a really long time. So, you know, it swung through Hamilton, which, you know, I spent a lot of time there, really have not had a chance to visit really even in passing for some years. I think the last time I was there was probably 2017 and it was just kind of in and out to give a talk at, a, at an event. You know, went through Brantford, which, uh, you know, I don't have much of a relationship to it, although I did play hockey there a bunch. I played hockey against Brantford and, and lost many times. The train then stopped in Woodstock, which like at, at this point in the trip, we were like five or six kilometers from the house I grew up in, which I haven't visited since ooh, 2005 or something. And I, you know, was noticing like street corners in Woodstock and things like that that I hadn't thought about for, for years. Then the train passed through London, another place that I have a pretty deep relationship with, spent a lot of time there as a kid. Well, we've talked on the show about how objects can be kind of repositories of memory, right? And the same is true of places, right? To put it a bit crudely, there were many uh, Proustian Madelines on the way, and a lot of uh, a lot of memories came back to me. There's no wider takeaway there. It was just another part of the trip. And, you know, I didn't expect the train ride to be uh, so memorable, but it was. Well, I find that if I'm on the bus going north on Kipling from Kipling Station, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. If I'm on that bus, which is the bus that I would take to and from downtown when I was in high school. I grew up around Kipling and Eglinton and Etobicoke. Uh, when I'm on that bus, I often feel actually like no time has passed. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's been 15 or 20 years. It feels like I'm going back to my parents' house. It's it's like, you know, when they take down a billboard and you see like, yeah, I mean... A, you, you see all the, all the billboards yeah. that once were. Yeah, like there was a funny incident a year or two ago in Toronto where some billboards were taken down. And for a couple of weeks, just in the East End, there was a billboard for Spaceballs. That's amazing. Yeah, which oh, which came out in 1987. And it was just there underneath. And, and that's how I feel. <laughs> I feel it and it's not it's sometimes it's a nice feeling sometimes it's an unpleasant feeling it just, yeah, I just oh, feel yeah. like a 17 year old again before we get to the movie uh how about a little politics talk what do you think <laughs> um, I'm always game for that uh, we've talked a few times in passing but something I I just want to linger in is we've seen certain tendencies in political discourse that were really prevalent in the last few American election cycles reach this kind of grotesque undead stage. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you know the sort of thing I'm talking about. Uh, a guy who's really low-hanging fruit at this point, but nevertheless still commands a large audience, uh, Nate Silver. <laughs> I know the take you're about to bring up, but let us also honor Nate's great take uh, from last year that was making the rounds about how Eric Adams represented the future of the Democratic Party. And you know, when you bring up somebody like Nate Silver, it's important to keep it in perspective. Uh, I don't care about Nate Silver as a person. Sometimes they'll just say something that represents a, a broader current of thought. Mm -hmm. And yesterday he posted, is Biden losing votes because of his position on Gaza? Yeah, probably. However, he'd probably lose more votes if he took any other position on Gaza. Issues that divide your coalition in half are really nasty. 
So look, the obvious factual issues here, I mean, it's not exactly half, it's more like 80-20 or or 70-30. Well, right. So there's, uh, based on all the polling I've seen, there's a a majority, probably a growing one of of Americans who who support a ceasefire. Among Democrats, the number is pretty overwhelming, but there's a majority among Republicans as well. So yeah, it's always interesting to see where the so-called data journalism guys just ignore the data that's, you know, staring them in the face. But putting that aside, people like Nate Silver are always there to tell you that the evil that's happening right in front of you is necessary to win the votes of some hypothetical voters who who are not you. <laughs> yeah. Because, look, you're going to vote blue no matter who. <laughs> Stop kidding yourselves. Mm-hmm. You voted for Biden. Mm-hmm. You were mad that Bernie lost. Right. And if you're Muslim, what are you going to do? Vote for Trump? That's the calculation. <laughs> right. And, you know, obviously morally, the idea of looking at the indiscriminate killing of at least 15,000 people backed with the full weight of the American war machine, you know, if your first instinct is to not just be aghast at that and is instead to try to fit it into some configuration of, well, how does this affect the coalition? You know, that speaks to a deep moral rot. Um, But you're going to be hearing a lot in the next year or two about how people like Biden or Justin Trudeau have navigated an impossible situation. That's going to be the new spin. Or they've been between a rock and a hard place, and they've done the best that anyone can do. And there's going to be a lot of revisionist history to support that. Well, it's happening already, right? Where Biden is trying to, like, the the humanitarian pause, so-called, which, by the way, humanitarian pause, not a phrase I had ever heard until a few weeks ago. But the humanitarian pause, so-called, which has been reinvented as a ceasefire, like, which was the thing that it was actually an alternative to. Now there's a spin that's like, why are people so mad at Joe Biden? He negotiated a ceasefire. And it's like, well, no, actually, he didn't. And don't let them gaslight you, okay? (laughs) Don't let them gaslight you into thinking that these are canny political operators getting down in the muck, rolling up their sleeves. The calculation was that North Americans don't care about foreign policy and that they've never really cared about Israel-Palestine. Uh, we all we all know that foreign policy has absolutely no impact on elections ever, and particularly the United States, where you know you couldn't possibly look to examples like the 2006 midterms or the election of Barack Obama or you know numerous other cases where foreign policy uh, actually seems to have been uh, yeah the the major factor or one of the major factors in swinging an election. The calculation was that after an initial wave of anger. You know, the people would uh, uh, yell and scream and then they would tire themselves out. And this military operation would be done and uh, what, 4,000 people dead. That was the initial calculation, probably. And this last weekend in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, there was a protest of over 100,000 people. The biggest pro-Palestine protest in Canadian history, I understand. And and I mean, you know, if people don't know Ottawa, 100,000 people in Ottawa, is, I mean, that would be significant in any Canadian city. But Ottawa is nowhere near the size of uh, somewhere like Toronto or Montreal or, or Vancouver. So, you know, the number is particularly significant uh, for that reason as well. Beyond that, we hear reports almost every day of frazzled diplomatic relations all over the world. For example, American influence on the global south has reportedly taken a huge hit, as well as just look at what you're seeing with your own eyes. In a so-called rules-based international order, you can't operate this way. The indiscriminate killing of 15,000 people, you know, war crimes and atrocities on an hourly basis, and, and think that that hasn't changed the world. So as the revisionist history continues over the next year or two, please just remember, drastic miscalculations have been made. You know, it's funny, I knew you were going to bring up that Nate Silver tweet. As soon as I saw it uh, yesterday, (laughs) I was like, Will's going to want to talk about this. 
I actually have a slightly alternate interpretation of it. And I just want to put this on the table for consideration. This isn't a defense of it exactly, because if this is what he meant, then, you know, the take is really no better. So because of the way Silver uses the word coalition uh, in that tweet, I'm sort of wondering, is he maybe referring to the elite coalition? Like, I know he talks about votes off the top, but I mean, the fact is Biden's political coalition, right? It's not just voters. It's also, you know, members of Congress. It's right. So if he were good at his job, he would say that like he wouldn't disguise it in this. Oh, is he losing (laughs) votes? You know, even on those terms, Let's be incredibly generous to the Nate Silver tweet. (laughs) At this point, I don't think you can argue that miscalculations haven't been made. First of all, a coalition is a coalition. He has alienated members of that coalition that were not supposed to be alienated. Well, that's right. One of the the basic rules of thumb in, you know, mainstream punditry is that you're allowed to, and it's actually often good to alienate, you know, the left, but you always need to keep uh, your right flank satisfied. And in fact, you always need to chase, you know, some mythical center that you often find by like hippie punching or by distancing yourself from the left, right? Like you're supposed to be having like little mini sister soldier moments all the time. I sometimes think about how different the messaging might have been. I mean, there's no way you can spin the deaths of 15,000 civilians. I think I know what you're going to say. And I mean, I agree, Obama would have, he would have figured out a way to do it better than Biden is doing. The policy would have been the same. Well, exactly. (laughs) And I mean, just just look at those statements that he released, you know, those mealy-mouthed Mr. Rogers neighborhood statements (laughs) that he released that he saw so many well-meaning people be like, read this. Yeah, and yeah. By the way, folks, check out this middle brow novel I just read. You know, Obama wouldn't have embraced the full bear hug strategy. I think the optics of the visit to Israel would have been different. And I don't think Obama would have been uh, careless enough to just say, oh, yeah, I, I don't believe the death tally, you know, in the exact way that Biden did. I mean, you know, one of the one of the things that Obama was good at on a technical level was being the sort of storyteller in chief, the mm-hmm. na- the narrative weaver in chief. That's something that Biden is not capable of being at this point. You know, we can move on from Nate Silver uh, shortly. I do just want to say one more thing, uh, a thought prompted by what you said about him off the top. Which is, yeah, like, as you said, uh, Nate Silver, you know, as a person, you know, who cares or whatever, but he is emblematic of certain things about mainstream punditry that are incredibly annoying. And I think have actually been very unconstructive to political discourse. The thing Silver is doing in that tweet where, yeah, he's he's abstracting politics from any wider, you know, moral or ethical framework. And then it's just all about, well, if Biden did X, you know, you might like it, but then, you know, he would lose voters somewhere else. So, you know, who's to say, blah, blah, blah. And one of my big issues with modern opinion polling, uh, certainly, and its pervasiveness in media reporting and cable news coverage, etc., and something which is especially true of, um, you know, a sort of data guru like Nate Silver is that I, I feel it's often missed or, you know, quite actively uh, denied by certain people that polling itself, when it's this pervasive, um, and even just Nate Silver himself, like these are inputs into public opinion. They are actors which themselves uh, help uh, shape and, and kind of contour the acceptable parameters of discourse about a given issue. 
And that can happen in all kinds of ways. But one of those, and I think really the worst one as far as I'm concerned, which you can see in the in the tweet you quoted, is that everybody is sort of encouraged to be their own Nate Silver, right? It's like, you know, I've complained about this endlessly. And, you know, we saw it in 2020 as well. It's honestly probably one of the things that uh, allowed or enabled Joe Biden to defeat Sanders in that primary. There's this idea that's been quite actively fostered by a lot of pundits and, and I think really deliberately stoked by certain politicians as well that, you know, you are actually not supposed to prioritize your own preferences or interests as a voter, either the political values that you have or your own self-interest as, you know, a, a person, a citizen who has who has desires and, and needs, whatever. You are always supposed to be thinking about some mythical uh, median voter and you're supposed to contort your preferences and how you vote around that person. And the net result of that is, you know, what we see in this tweet, which is a way of thinking about and relating to politics that is basically abstracted from any wider considerations about ethics or morality. Even if we assume that Nate Silver's right here, like, who cares? Like, shouldn't we all believe that there are instances where political leadership should do things not because they're popular, but because they're the right thing to do or because not doing them is deeply immoral? I mean, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Ernest, you're a good man, aren't you? You got me. This Friday, experience the movie Rolling Stone calls earth-shaking. Killers of the Flower Moon is epic. The best movie of the year. You're going to make trouble. Make it big. A new kind of Scorsese masterpiece. Cody wants money. Money's real nice. Killers of the Flower Moon. Rated R. Only Peter's Friday. It's time for the plug section of the show. I'll just note that we do have a third mic. Uh, the Dalton McGinty studio has another resident. Uh, his name is Hugo. Uh, he has four feet and he's uh, running around and he's very high strung. Uh, he doesn't like it when strange men are in his space. <laughs> and today that strange man is Luke. <laughs> So if you hear the pitter-patter of little feet, you know, he, he may chime in with his opinions every now and then. Uh, he, he likes to walk. He likes to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Those are kind of his two big interests. But yes, it is time for the plug section on patreon.com slash Michael and us. Some of our recent patron-only episodes have included a listener's choice, a superdelegate selection, Michael Mann's Heat, which uh, Luke just saw for the first time and he liked it. Yeah, it's good as hell. Yeah. Also, we did an episode, listen, things have been uh, pretty rough lately, and uh, felt a need to retreat into childhood, (laughs) did an episode on the 1997 film Mouse Hunt. Well, I can say that I had a lot of fun on that, and I don't know if Will did, but uh, I think you'll all have fun uh, if you listen to that. As well as a recent patron-only episode on Southland Tales, which is really a long time coming, I think. Yes. Yes, so we do a whole extra episode a week which you can find by subscribing for the lowly sum of five Yankee dollars a month. Uh, that's for the Al Gore tier. $10 to become a superdelegate. Details about what that means can be found on our Patreon. We post a lot of other goodies as well, not just the extra episodes. So if you can't get enough Will and Luke, do subscribe at patreon.com slash Michael and us. We're up to nearly 2,000 subs now, which is not where we we're expecting to get when I bullied Will into starting a Patreon some years ago. But I'm sure glad that I did. 
Wherever you're listening to this, uh, whether you found us from the Jacobin feed or from somewhere else, do take a moment to rate the show. We've gotten some kind reviews as well recently. It really does help us with algorithms and such. Uh, if you'd leave a review, according to one recent reviewer, uh, Hespler, uh, they just keep getting better. Excellent show. They break down movies and politics in an intelligent manner that stays light and fun. So thanks, Hespler, for that review. I know it's annoying. I know that on every single feed, whether you're watching, you know, somebody on YouTube or listening to a podcast, people ask you to do this. It's really annoying, but there is a reason for it. It does help other people see the show, which is, of course, how we keep growing and continuing to provide you all with such excellent and wonderful content. So please rate and review the show if you can. Luke reads the reviews, but me, I do my content for the fans, not the critics. <laughs> anyway, our movie on this episode is Killers of the Flower Moon by Martin Scorsese. We're doing it because it's a film that's uh, very good. It's a film that's relevant for our times. And also because Luke went to see it this week. The boys did not see this movie together. We've seen it uh, separated and also separated by a few weeks. But I'm very excited to talk to Luke about it because I'm hugely enthusiastic about this movie. I suspect you are too. <laughs> You know, I don't claim to read your mind, but I just I just get the sense you're going to like this one. Yet another trifle from the hack Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Off the top, I'll just say that there are very few movies, I think, that have more incisively communicated what evil is and the way it functions in a day to day society. I mean, Shoah comes to mind as another movie that accomplishes something similar, but in the fiction realm. I don't think I've seen a movie that shows not just how evil can operate, but how how easy it is to operate, how easy it is to implicate all of us. Um, what are your feelings about the film? Well, I mean, there's so much to say. I mean, I think it's brilliant. I think it might be. I mean, it's top tier Scorsese, certainly. You know, I found it deeply moving in places and also uh, deeply upsetting in many others as well. I mean, it is a film which shows you again and again the horrific violence uh, inflicted on the Osage tribe by white settlers, uh, and also just the horrific abuse of women by men who, uh, who regard them as little more than objects. It is not afraid to show you the ugliness of all of those things, and it shows it to you again and again and again. I will say, I don't know how much we've made it a practice to talk about the theater experience, but just uh, for a bit of lighthearted fare off the top before we get into the serious subject matter of the film, I will say my immediate enjoyment of, of it was slightly compromised by perhaps like the worst rudeness I've maybe ever seen in a movie theater. There was a couple sitting to my left who were just constantly talking throughout the movie, reacting to things. For a lot of the time, it was sort of like just below the threshold where you felt like you absolutely had to say something because it was going to be unbearable. But honestly, they were virtuosos of not quite ever really surpassing that threshold where they would have received censure from those around them. But yeah, they were like, one of them kept asking the other questions. Uh, they were reacting to things. So like something extremely provocative would happen on screen and then you'd hear one of them audibly say, oh, here we go. At one point, you know, the woman's phone uh, went off and then she couldn't find it. This went on for like two or three minutes and she finally left the theater as like the most annoying ringtone you've ever heard just like sounded off and I'm just like biting my lip looking defiantly at the screen being like I'm not distracted I'm not distracted but it's like god damn it dude every time uh, you encounter something like this it's just impossible to conceive of how anybody could be that rude but uh, nevertheless the film is based on a true story 
the source material is a 2017 nonfiction book by a journalist named David Gran, itself based on a magazine article, I believe. The film's long pre-production involved, as I'm sure many listeners already know, the radical reconfiguration of the screenplay and the gaze of the film. It was originally from the perspective, as the book reportedly is, of the FBI, with Leonardo DiCaprio playing the ranger who was later played by Jesse Plemons. But at some point, and I believe this was informed by consultation with the actual Osage in Oklahoma, at some point it was decided that the perspective was shifted to Ernest Burkhart, who was originally going to be played by Plemons and is now played by DiCaprio, as well as his wife, an Osage named Molly Kyle, played by Lily Gladstone. The action begins in 1919 when Ernest returns from the First World War to live in Oklahoma with his uncle, William King Hale, played by Robert De Niro. Yeah, and there's a kind of an early sequence that gives uh, some of the backstory here. But since this is based on a true story, it's worth fully fleshing that out. You know, the Osage were, uh, like many of America's native people, uh, driven from their ancestral home. Thomas Jefferson, sometime after the Louisiana Purchase, promised peace, but then, uh, you know, threatened the Osage into signing a treaty that eventually deprived them of uh, 150 million acres of their uh, ancestral land and forced them west. Um, some of them, including the real Molly Burkhart's ancestors, ended up in Kansas, but were not, uh, as you can probably imagine, exactly welcomed by the white settlers who were there. Uh, so they decided to purchase land that was hilly and rocky and um, unlikely to be of the same interest to settlers. Now, the film opens with an Osage ceremony and then also a sequence. It's not exactly clear when this is taking place, but a sequence showing the discovery of uh, you know massive deposits deposits of oil underneath the land. Um, So they got the land in Oklahoma incredibly cheap. It was uh, 70 cents an acre or something like that. But then they found that they were basically on top of this, uh, this massive gold mine. So when the film opens... What we learn is that the tribe has become incredibly rich. You know, everybody has gotten a a stake in the oil wealth. And it's this fact that uh, essentially drives the whole plot of the film, because this means that the land and the people on it are of tremendous interest to white settlers. So the very thing the Osage moved to Oklahoma to avoid the attention of white settlers. And it also means that marriages to Osage women are incredibly prized by local men, because essentially, if you marry someone like Molly Burkhart, you're going to be incredibly rich. William King Hale, the Robert De Niro character, is a wealthy landowner in this reserve. Uh, He's a prominent local citizen, considered a friend to the Osage, and an ally and broker between the Osage and the white world. When Ernest Burkhart returns from the war, William Hale essentially lets him in on the scheme. He says, you know, it would be smart of you to marry one of these Osage landowners. In particular, how about that Molly? Yeah, and I think importantly, Ernest at the beginning of the film, he's a very blank character. This is something that uh, a writer observed in in a New Yorker essay that I'll read from later. But essentially, when we meet Ernest, he seems to be a person without place, without identity. He's a tabula rasa onto which... William King Hale, played by Robert De Niro, is very easily able to impress certain insidious values and and schemes. It's not really clear what uh, Ernest is going to do for work, but we soon see him driving a cab, and uh, that's, of course, how he meets Molly. Almost immediately, we see Ernest commit a number of uh, petty crimes. There's also a scene where he's gambling early on, and he says, bluntly, I love money! And then when he throws his cards down, he loses all of the money, (laughs) uh, which kind of sets the tone for his character. 
shirt. Now, in a normal movie, this would be in the early... It'd be the whole of Act 1 and maybe half of Act 2 as well. And it would be established in the early scenes that this character is, you know, a little dim, but perhaps not irredeemable. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the early scenes, when he first meets Molly, uh, they have a certain chemistry together. And you're set up to think, well, the love of a good woman will free him from the evil clutches of his uncle William Hale. It's also important to note that, you know, much of the first act of this film, there's honestly a lot of joy here. I mean, even if you know very little about the actual history, I mean, you're going to know that something less joyful is coming. But the William King Hale character... Played, I would say, quite brilliantly by Robert De Niro. Honestly, probably one of the most evil characters I've ever seen depicted on screen. He does initially appear, um, and, you know, the film introduces you to him as a kind of, yeah, honest local citizen. You know, he speaks the language, which, by the way, many of the actors had to learn Osage for the film. But even as Hale tries to get Ernest Burkhart, you know, tries to sort of plant the seed of, hey, that Molly seems like a keeper, you know, you uh, you should try to marry her. It's not initially evident just how sinister this is. Well, the thing about the De Niro character is what appears good about him, I think, is on the same spectrum as what is bad about him. He initially presents as, yeah, this broker figure, this guardian figure, a sort of quintessential white liberal, uh, a a quintessential (laughs) triangulator. Um, He has the Osage's best interests at heart. Um, he, He infantilizes them. And that's... On the same spectrum, it's a difference in degree, not kind, from him later saying, listen, this tribe is going to die out, so wouldn't it be good if we got the money? Ernest and Molly do fall in love and get married, and this central relationship, which is the emotional heart of the film, is also the home to many of its richest ambiguities. I've seen Martin Scorsese interviewed about the film, and he says that in talking to descendants of Molly and members of the Osage, one point that they impressed upon him was they really did love each other. And as the movie goes on and Ernest's actions become increasingly more evil, a viewer can be forgiven for looking at the movie and saying, well, why does she stay here? Why does she have so much trust and faith in this character who's clearly killing her? And the fact is, they both did love each other, and that led to, you know, certain compartmentalizations in both of them. I just want to finish up the point that we introduced before about act one of this film and how Scorsese decides to pace it. I mean, it really is quite interesting. In any other movie, you know, as Will was saying, Ernest Burkhart would have probably undergone some kind of, yeah, moral downfall. Uh, And yet there's a very conscious choice made in the film to just show him doing, you know, first petty crimes, then crimes that get increasingly uh, more brutal and and severe. It becomes a difference of degree rather than kind. He's the same Ernest at the end of the film, but... Um, the badness in him is exploited to greater ends. That's right. So instead of seeing any kind of moral downfall, what Scorsese shows us instead is the compartmentalization in a sense that Will just alluded to. There's Burkhart's public self and there's his private self. And we're shown the two in tandem. It's incredible how abrupt it is. I mean, actually, in the, in the first scene where Ernest is doing a crime, it actually took me a second to process what was happening because I thought, well, that is that is this, is this Ernest? Uh, is he already doing crime? What's what's going on here? But it's in service to something, uh, you know, very important to the movie as a whole, which is the way that so many of the white characters, yeah, compartmentalize their relationships with the Osage. 
but also compartmentalize the self as well. You know, something about Ernest Burkhart is that he's such a blank character that he seems able to, you know, not grapple at all with, uh, the, you know, the contradictions in his own behavior. This character feels to me like a sort of logical end point of a type of character that Scorsese has dealt with for almost his entire career. I mean, Travis Bickle, Rupert Pupkin, Henry Hill in Goodfellas... More recently, Frank Sheeran in The Irishman, uh, I think, was the most passive and least charismatic and least self-reflective character at the center of a Scorsese movie until this one. Yeah, and you know what? I might as well just read from this uh, excellent essay in The New Yorker, uh, which I think was very helpful to me in understanding uh, Ernest's character. Quote, The rapidity with which Ernest, without a glimmer or a flicker of self-awareness, is drawn into petty crime and then into murderous schemes suggests an existential vortex of normalized death predation. In the case of Ernest, a blank slate, the lesion through which contamination takes hold is his blankness, his rootless need to belong, his lack of clear purpose, his gratitude to his uncle for handing him an identity, a life. Yet even as his inchoate desires are awakened, energized, and weaponized, Ernest is both more than just another profiteer and less. He's a blank of another kind, blank to himself. With his G-Willikers charm comes a kind of puerile, no infantile ignorance. Ernest is perfectly innocent and perfectly guilty, simple enough to know he's doing wrong and unreflective enough not to doubt it's the right thing to do. He isn't so much a Jamesian central consciousness as he has a central block of unconsciousness. Without a shred of insight, he's a figure of naive American contradiction whose sole glimmer of redemption is his love for Molly and his recognition of her nobility and character. So we should talk about Molly, who is portrayed by uh, Lily Gladstone in an absolutely uh, tour de force, virtuosic performance. Again, the courtship between her and Ernest Burkhart for a time uh, really does feel quite tender, as does their relationship. There's a key scene early on when somebody asks the Molly character, well, don't you think he's in it for the money? Don't you think he's, you know, a bit of a gold digger here? And she says, well, I'm sure he's in it for the money, but, you know, he also wants belonging. He also wants roots. And that awareness is important to the character. There's an awareness tempered with, you know, a sense of wanting to believe. I think crucial in the relationship here is all of the Osage understand that the white settlers are sort of this force that isn't going away and has to be uh, negotiated with in some sense. Her negotiation is, well, within this system that's been imposed on us, this seems like a good man. This seems like a man who will protect me within this system. Now, I suppose the first signs in the film that all is maybe not what it seems come in the form of, of mysterious illnesses that seem to be afflicting various Osage women. We learn early on that Molly is diabetic and that her mother, Lizzie, is ill. I'll just say I had the privilege of uh, speaking with Tantu Cardinal, who plays Lizzie a few days ago for a forthcoming piece. Keep an eye out for that. Lizzie is a character who says very little, but all of her silences are imbued with tremendous meaning. And I think Tantu Cardinal does a wonderful job portraying her. But so Molly's sister, Minnie, dies of this mysterious illness. We then see uh, Hale order another local thug to kill Molly's other sister, Anna. Now, this film makes use in a number of places of flashbacks. And uh, when we find out that Anna's been killed, there's a, an absolutely gut-wrenching scene where, you know, somebody perhaps the local sheriff comes and tells Molly, you know, it's your sister, Anna. There have been a number of scuffles involving Anna and her husband. All is not well with them. 
and there's this gut-wrenching scene after Molly's been informed of her sister's death where they go to the site of her death, you know, which we know is a murder, and there's an absolutely gruesome scene uh, that awaits them. Now, much later in the film, there is a flashback where we're actually shown Anna's murder. And I don't know about you, Will, but this was one of the most upsetting scenes in the in the entire film. Oh, yeah. And well, among other things, this scene occurring so late in the movie is an example of the movie's odd structure, where yes. it often, it, it doesn't go from point A to point B to point C. It's constantly showing you something and then doubling back later. All, I think, is part of a conscious strategy to avoid um, the traditional catharsis that movies like this often have. The scene that takes you back in time to Anna's murder is very upsetting, but it's also very important because what is Anna saying during that scene? Uh, She's saying in a very resigned way, you're going to kill me. It wouldn't be quite right to say she's accepting her fate, but she's recognizing it. She is under no illusions at all about what's happening. And I think it's fair to extrapolate that it's this understanding on Anna's part that has led to the deep dysfunction in her marriage and in her life. But so for whatever reason, Anna has been able to have this realization more quickly than her sisters, which is, of course, the reason why uh, Hale orders her murder in the first place. The murders pile up for the first two or so hours of the film without officialdom taking it seriously. That's right. And uh, the Osage are not unaware that there's something happening. You know, uh, Molly hires, I believe, several private investigators who all end up dead or they disappear. It's not really clear to her what's happening. Some at Ernest Burkhardt's hands. That's right. I mean, that's another example of the odd structure of the film, because while we do see this private investigator uh, beaten and presumably killed, It's only later in the film that we see the exact same scene again, but shot in a way that shows that it's Ernest who delivers the final blow. The Osage also send a representative to Washington, D.C. to try to get the federal government to do something, uh, and he ends up dead as well, uh, murdered in an alleyway. Eventually, Hale and Burkhart's machinations become too obvious. There's one botched killing in particular that becomes too obvious to ignore. This is the the house that gets blown up? Well, there's that, but there's also Molly's ex-boyfriend who is killed in the front when he should have been killed in the back. That's right. Burkhart hires some local doofus who's helped him do crimes in the past. This subplot is pretty interesting because it actually takes the guy quite a while to carry out the murder. He actually befriends his target. They spend a lot of time drinking together. They're hanging out down at the local saloon. And this guy, the head rights to his land go to Hale if he can stay alive basically to the end of the year. You know, this is one of the many things in the film that is so sickening. And I felt its grotesqueness in my stomach as I was watching it because there's a scene where Hale is, you know, ostensibly caring for this guy, lies him down by the fire. And then as he's just, you know, unconscious in a drunken stupor, he's just openly saying to Ernest, you know, he he, he tried to kill himself last year. You know, we just got to keep him alive for a few more months. You know, think about yeah. that. That's when the life insurance policy kicks in. And like he has it's to, despicable. he has to remain in this state, basically this drunken suicidal state to make the coming suicide, quote unquote, plausible. But these killings become too obvious to ignore. So Washington sends an agent Thomas Bruce White Sr., played by Jesse Plemons down to town. Oh, I was, uh, Sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. Huh. See, see what about him? See who's doing it. Hmm. You a detective? You a Pinkerton? What are you? No, sir. I was a Texas Ranger. I'm now with the federal government. 
It's called the Bureau of Investigation. Um, I tell you what, if you if you got questions, if you got questions, uh, I'll go talk to the sheriff. He can probably tell you what you need to know. Oh, yes, sir, I have. I, I, I talked to him, but I'm here to speak with Molly Burkhardt, whose who's sisters and mother is dead. And this character, importantly, has no local ties. Molly eventually goes to Washington as well, and she meets with President Calvin Coolidge. Plemons denies that he's been sent by the administration. But what's important, as Will says, is that uh, Jesse Plemons' character, Thomas Bruce White Sr., doesn't have any local connections, has no uh, stake in the murders, and so is able to look at the situation more objectively and just treat it like the, you know, serial murder case that it so obviously is. The book was told from the perspective of White and the FBI, reportedly. I haven't read it. And the first draft of the script was as well. Uh, it's a crucial artistic decision to not make it such because one of the... A- and a good one, yes, I should say. Yes, because one of the effective things about this movie is that it is apocalyptic. This Jesse Plemons character is an individual. He doesn't really represent the system. Had the movie been told from the point of view of the FBI, it would have been a story about the system writing itself. Now, at some point, because of Molly's diabetes, in one of the many, many evil acts on the part of Hale throughout the film... Molly begins to be injected with uh, an experimental drug called insulin. She's uh, reportedly one of the first people in the country to be given insulin injections. What a privilege. Well, of course, this is how uh, this is how Hale and then later uh, Ernest sell it to her. Even as Molly grows suspicious because her condition continues to worsen, she on some level continues to trust her husband. Even though on the instruction of the doctors and his uncle, Ernest starts spiking the insulin with an unknown substance that only makes Molly more and more sick. And for me, one of the most memorable films, and honestly, the kind of scene which makes this film, whatever its differences might be, as distinctively a Martin Scorsese film as, you know, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, or Casino, or Wolf of Wall Street. There's a scene where Ernest uh, is talking to Molly in bed, and her condition by this point is just horrendous. She's not exactly sure what's real and what isn't. She thinks she might be hallucinating. And then in a moment of remarkable lucidity, she just says to Ernest, you know, you're you're next, you know. There's another scene that's a quintessential Scorsese scene around this point in the movie where Ernest is talking to Hale. Hale's in the seat of a car and uh, Hale hands him this contract, you know, sign your head rights over to me in the event that you die. (sighs) And this scene is kind of like that scene in Goodfellas in, in the diner. And the implication is the fix is in, you know, he's going down too. But unlike the Ray Liotta character, Ernest Burkhart doesn't realize it. Yeah, and he, and after a very slight pushback, he just signs the form. And of course, what Hale has on him at this point is the fact that the federal authorities are looking around. And so Hale sort of uses a carrot here, as he so often does uh, with his schemes throughout the movie. He basically says, look, these guys are going to look into you, but uh, you know, I've got the best lawyers. All the lawyers know me. I can help you. You're going to beat this, but I just need you to sign this little form. Can you do that for me, sport? And he also says of Molly, where it's the effect of, look, she's She's diabetic. She's gonna go. And we all understand this. And the best that we can do now is treat her well as she goes. And this is so important because it both establishes a reality for Ernest to live in. It establishes the reality that, look, by definition, she is going to go. And then by establishing that reality, it allows him to continue the compartmentalization. It allows him to feel he's not complicit in it. 
Now, in investigating the murders, it doesn't take White and his detail uh, very long to figure out what's going on. Hale and Ernest are both arrested, and Molly is discovered uh, at the point of death, basically, or on the on the precipice of death at home. And uh, she's taken to a hospital where, for the first time in the entire movie, it seems, she's given a form of medical care that isn't trying to kill her slowly. She's receiving a form of medical care that's actually medical care. Now, it's at this point uh, that the movie threw me another curveball because it seems like it's building up to a big showdown, you know, court scene. Ernest Burkhart is convinced that he needs to testify. We should say, you know, Plemons' character, White, is quite competent in his interrogation of various local figures. He's able to get the truth by interviewing or interrogating a bunch of them and then, you know, just noting the differences in their stories. So White is initially uh, able to convince Ernest to uh, confess and become, you know, a state's witness with a view to convicting Hale, who is the ultimate target of the investigation here and the mastermind of the whole thing. So in an absolutely remarkable scene that completely surprised me and how it turned out, Ernest Burkhardt is dragged into the court and, you know, he sees his uncle on the stand. There's various other characters from the movie who are in the courtroom as well. And the trial does not happen. Hale's lawyer uh, is basically able to disrupt things and say that, well, he needs to speak to Ernest first before the trial can proceed. And then there is about an hour left in the movie beyond that. Hale's lawyer, by the way, played by the god Fraser. Yeah, I mean, this is another thing that's incredible about this movie is it's the kind of movie where Brendan Fraser can show up, you know, two and a half hours in. And you're just like, huh, it's Brendan Fraser. And yeah, it is a fantastic performance. He's only in a few scenes, but they're all memorable ones. So Fraser's character, Hamilton, who's acting as Hale's attorney, basically uh, tries to convince Ernest, you know, this is like the final Hale Mary to keep Ernest on side. It's like, just say they tortured you. Or, well, I mean, he doesn't even put it that way. He keeps stating his fact, well, you were tortured. That's why you said this stuff. And, and Ernest <laughs> believes whatever the last thing he's heard is. Again, this goes back to the uh, New Yorker writer's observation that Ernest is fundamentally a tabula rasa, a blank character. But then one of Ernest and Molly's daughters dies suddenly and mysteriously of whooping cough. And this is the final nail in the coffin for Ernest having any trust in his uncle. It's taken him this long. Hale tries to have Ernest murdered, uh, does not succeed. And Ernest uh, ultimately testifies uh, against his uncle. This is followed by what is probably the most important scene in the movie, or certainly one of them, in which Molly confronts Ernest after he testifies. He says something like, uh, I feel a lot better having said all that stuff, you know, to have no more secrets. I feel so much lighter or something like that. And then she asks, did you know what was in the injection? Right. And this might be, you know, the most important exchange in the movie, because what Molly is doing here is she's giving him one final chance that he doesn't deserve. She's giving him one final chance to be honest and to tell the truth. But Ernest can't do that because because the act of doing so, being honest about this one thing, you know, he can be honest about his uncle's evil. He can even be honest about his complicity in particular murders and things like that. But what he cannot do, because his entire self, his whole character would dissolve if he did so, he could not admit to his wife that, uh, yeah, I was complicit in making you sick. I damn well knew what was in those shots. And we should say, Ernest is in denial. You know, he denies to himself what's going on for quite a long time. And then there's one kind of offhanded scene where we actually see him put uh, some of the mystery substance into his own drink. So after that, there's absolutely no doubt that Ernest knows exactly what's going on. But he and cannot... And he still can't say it. He can't say it. He cannot confess to Molly here. I have to say, as Act 3 wore on, I started to become a little bit anxious that the film was going to try to redeem Ernest in some way. And I'm 
very glad that it didn't because Ernest as a character is completely beyond redemption. Now, this is obviously a spoiler filled discussion. Um, so if you haven't seen the movie, you shouldn't have been listening. Um, but <laughs> go if, see the movie. But it's great. If you haven't seen the movie, you should really stop listening right now. <laughs> if you haven't had the ending of the movie spoiled for you, because at this point, there's a rupture in the reality of the film. The rest of the story is told through a radio play, an old fashioned 1930s, 1940s style radio play with sound effects. You know, you see the band on stage, you see all the artificial processes used to create the sound of bullets and that sort of thing. Right. And that's very important, too, because so many of the sound effects, right, the means of generating these sound effects, even when the radio play is about these like absolutely horrific evils, murders committed, that kind of thing. The means for creating the effect are so corny. The effect is quite a trivializing one, which is ultimately why this scene is so brilliant, because the scene is both a meta-commentary on the film you've just seen, and also an important expository part of it as well. And it ends with Martin Scorsese himself delivering the final line about the eventual fate of Molly. And it's clear, and he's said this himself in his interviews, that this is him interrogating his own involvement in what is essentially a turning of this story into entertainment, which is what happens with all stories of atrocity. You know, I've brought this up on the podcast at least once or twice, but I remember a year or two ago, I went to see this very bad Liam Neeson movie. It was called Memory. And the plot of the movie, which I didn't know going in, was that it's all about kids in cages. You remember that? Kids in cages at the border. (laughs) That's a phrase I haven't heard for a long time. And I remember watching this movie and thinking... God, it took about a year and a half, maybe two years for kids in cages as a concept to go from being the hot button political issue, the moment of outrage to a plot device in like a a, a a down market Liam Neeson action thriller. Right. Because at a certain point you hear something that's so incomprehensible, so evil, and it's almost as if to go on living in the world, the national psyche has to turn it into just one of a galaxy of evils that, yeah, we know it's happening, but we're going to get to it. And in the meantime, here's Liam Neeson fighting the perpetrators in a movie. Most of those days don't live past 50. Were these women dying? Would how Osage suffer from illness? You have to make it the head rats come to you. You see? By the way, just a funny thing about my own theatrical experience. When Scorsese came on at the end of this scene, looking exactly like Martin Scorsese, the person in the row behind me whispered to their companion, that's the director. <laughs> I swear to God. God damn it. <laughs> Public service announcement, folks, don't be that person in the theater. Please, I'm begging you. And I know the next time I see this movie, I'll remember that. Ugh. It'll be part of the MST3K soundtrack in my head. You God, know? can we get a voodoo doll of the person who said that? But what does Scorsese say at the end of the film? So Scorsese as the radio announcer and also as himself delivers the final piece of exposition, which, you know, in another movie might have just appeared on sort of bland title cards at the end or something. Uh, The effect here is much more profound. He says, After Molly divorced Ernest, she lived with her new husband, John Cobb, on the reservation. She died of diabetes on June 16, 1937. Her obituary in the local paper said simply, Mrs. Molly Cobb, 50 years of age, passed away at 11 o'clock Wednesday night in her home. She was a full-blood Osage. She was buried in the old cemetery in Grey Horse beside her father, her mother, her sisters, and her daughter. There was no mention of the murders. 
Now, the film then concludes with a modern Osage ceremony of some kind. Yeah, and we see it from a drone shot. You know, a camera begins at the ground and then flies into the air, and we see a bird's eye view shot of this modern Osage ceremony. The implication being that the people endure or survive. Yes, the film, in spite of everything, ends on a triumphant note. And I found this ending indescribably moving. It's it's incredibly powerful. A further thing I'd like to commend about this movie is the soundtrack, which was overseen by uh, the late Robbie Robertson. Scorsese's old housemate in his decadent Los Angeles days. <laughs> the soundtrack is a mixture of uh, you know popular American songs from the 1920s and also Native American songs as well. The appearance of a song called Going Up the Country, uh, which was recorded uh, first by Henry Thomas in 1928. I've been fond of it for a very long time. It's a song that became known uh, much later because the band Canned Heat recorded it in the 1960s, and I think they may have played it at Woodstock as well. That's easily the most famous version. Probably only a tiny fraction of people uh, who know the song even know its origins in Henry Thomas, but uh, that put a smile on my face to hear that in the film. Last thing I'll say about this movie is, you know, we're all bystanders to atrocities. There are evil things all around us at any given time, and there's only so much that we can do as individuals in systems that are corrupt. And that fact, that knowledge gives us all a lot of freedom to let ourselves off the hook. You know, it gives us freedom to choose to ignore or compartmentalize. We can't fix everything, so it becomes easy to do nothing. It becomes easy to go with the flow and absolve ourselves of responsibility. Ernest is an unusually dim character, but again, what he represents, I think, is a difference of degree rather than kind with a lot of us. We all want to be absolved of responsibility or direct responsibility, and that's why this movie, which would resonate with me at any time, has particularly resonated with me over the last two months. Shake your hand, tell your father goodbye. 